0: You are not tuned in to another episode of Intellectually Petty Radio. I ain't got the intro. I ain't got none of that. Um, and if you were tuned in, I had Malik Yakini on the platform. I've uh, been waiting over a year for this interview. And the audio was just, uh, it was brutal. Anyway, um, so I sent him a link. And hopefully he gets it and we can actually continue the interview and get do it the right way and make sure it sounds good because I want him to be represented correctly and fully the way he's supposed to. And, I, and and it just sounded like there was nothing I would be able to do. It just sounded absolutely horrible. So um, hopefully he'll tap back in and we can get it. We can get it really, really. Uh, we can have a nice conversation. And if you don't know who I am, I am Jobs. I am your host. Uh so I had to basically uh drive back home and get back in my studio. You know, so oh. let's see if y'all can hear. Oh, all right. Let's let's
1: let's see what's happening now. Can you hear oh, me?
0: Oh, yes, I can. You sound great.
1: Great, great, great. You got to work out.
0: Yes, I think so. Well, you know, sometimes you got you got to take it home. You know. Um, and how, can you hear me okay?
1: I can hear you fine.
0: All right, any echo on your end? No
1: echo at
0: all. All right, this is what we're talking about. Let me just double check. Uh, all right, and he said it sounds great. Shout out to you, uh, cause um, all right now, and I do again apologize for that, man. I had to drive Whoa. all the way home the Makes whole sense. nine. So, we, where were we at? You know what? um
1: do we start from the, from the jump?
0: Let's start, start from the jump, man. Okay, food. Well, you told me about the first time you grew something. You were seven years old, right?
1: Yeah. So I was seven. For some reason, I was drawn towards planting something. I went to the local hardware store on Curitan and bought some carrot seeds and planted some carrot. And so I don't know what really drew me towards that, but I do know I spent time in my grandfather's garden with him. He was from Georgia. You lived on Montgomery near Linwood and that was the place I was at a lot. And so, you know, I'm sure that influenced me, but I didn't get seriously into gardening until about nineteen ninety ninety seven, ninety-six, something mm-hmm. like that. And I started really, really seriously getting into growing vegetables.
0: Okay, so in ninety seven, was that you, you just growing stuff at the house or was did you did you were you thinking on yeah, the community uh, garden situation?
1: No, at, at that point I was growing stuff at my house. Then by about uh, 2000 or so, I was running an African-centered school called Sorderman Institute, and we started doing gardening at the school for the children. And that's what really got me into it on a larger community basis.
0: Okay. So how did the children like that?
1: You know, the the younger children loved it. Um, You know, they gravitated towards it. You know, the middle schoolers, middle school children are different. A different all
0: altogether. It, it's it's a job for them.
1: Yeah, so you know it wasn't, wasn't it wasn't resonating with them as much as the younger children, but they seem to enjoy it also.
0: Now, I don't live in Detroit anymore, um, but from my understanding, there's a huge community garden community there. Hmm. Is it is it, how, it with respect to the rest of the country? Like how how big is it? Is it the largest? Did, did I read that right?
1: Well, I think Detroit could be called the the urban agriculture capital of the U.S. because there's more urban agriculture happening here than anywhere else in the country. Part of that is because of the tremendous amount of vacant land in the city of Detroit. Oh About one-third of the city's 139 square miles is vacant land. And, of course, there's lots of reasons for that. Primarily the white flight that started occurring in the 1950s and accelerated after the 1967 rebellion. And then mm-hmm. continued and then you have black middle-class flight also like in the eighties and 90s and 2000s you have black middle-class people who could afford to leave detroit who weren't satisfied with maybe the schools or the police yes. or the garbage collection and lots of them moved out into the suburbs surrounding uh, the city of detroit so there's a lot of vacant land in the city of detroit and there's this long history in fact the reality is urban agriculture in the united states Began in, the United States, began in Detroit in the 1890s with a mayor named Hazen Pingree, who's sometimes called Potato Patch Pingree, because during a period of economic depression, he encouraged wealthy landowners in Detroit to make the land available for landless people to grow potatoes and other vegetables on to stave off starvation. And then also we have the long history of folks coming up from the South, which is how my grandparents came. My father's father came from Georgia, father's father and mother came from georgia a mm-hmm. mother's mother and father came from arkansas and so in the south agriculture is just part of life whether you were a farmer or not you probably had a garden you know on your, yeah. on your land that you were growing things and so they brought that with them and so we had that influx of agricultural knowledge from the south we had the history of Hayes and pendry having uh, uh kind of catalyzed community gardens in detroit and then we had the conditions that existed, uh, you know, as grocery stores began to close and it was a greater need for people to grow their own food. That also prop- uh, uh, propagated a lot of gardens in the city of Detroit.
0: Okay, so how do you go about just, the, do you just ride down the street, you see a vacant lot, you're like, okay, we're well, going to set up shop there? How's that work?
1: Some people do that and they call that guerrilla gardening. And uh, that's kind of how our organization started in two thousand and six. We had a spot on the east side that we didn't have any permit to. In fact, sometimes I jokingly tell people we had about as much permission to be on that land as the white people who came over here to the western <laughs> hemisphere. <laughs> to the land here. Um, but so some people do that. But most times, I think people start either on a in their backyard, or there might be a lot next to their house, or a lot near their house. And so i think that's usually what happens sometimes you know the city has a program where you can apply for a year i think it is maybe two years mm-hmm. use a uh, vacant property that's owned by the city and the city also has a program where you can buy if, if you're a homeowner and your taxes are up to date which are two big things which could knock a lot of people out frankly yeah, yeah. but if you meet those two conditions and there's a vacant lot next to your house You can buy it for i think it's a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars and so there's a variety of ways that people go about getting land to do gardening in the city of detroit
0: yeah i think my auntie actually owns a couple vacant lots on on chalmers Mm
1: -hmm.
0: never really she moved to texas and and left the house i think she still owns the lots never really considered growing something on there you know, and like like when I grew up, I, like I told you earlier, I grew up on Seven Mile and Southfield. Like right on Southfield and Seven Mile, it used to be like a little farmer's market. You could, you, we could walk up there. We could buy fresh fruit. We could, you know, whatever you want. It was a bunch of shit that was just fresh. That disappeared before I hit high school, and never came back.
1: Yeah.
0: What has been the biggest change in our food source? You've seen growing up
1: well when i was growing up in the 60s in detroit there were multiple national chains there was A.M.P., yeah. there was chatham there yeah. was wrigley's there was farmer jack uh and there were two or three others that aren't coming to mind right now but almost any neighborhood you lived in in the city of detroit mm-hmm. there was a full service grocery store within walking distance so the neighborhood i lived in as a child where i still live by the way i still live in the house i grew up in on and really? Six mile uh, the nearest supermarket to us was the amp on puritan near, near Livinois. so we could we could walk up there and you know it was nearby so the biggest change i think has been that as the population in detroit began to decline and frankly as the more affluent people left the city and moved into the suburbs grocery stores kind of followed that population movement Um, they found, they went to areas where there was more population density and where residents had more disposable income. So a lot of the stores closed in Detroit. So that's the first big thing I noticed that we didn't have the same level of access. Mm -hmm. Then a lot of party stores started, you know, what we call in Detroit party stores, they call them niggas on the East side, on the East coast. Um, and those were selling, you know, cigarettes, lottery tickets, potato chips, you know, maybe some canned foods, maybe foods in boxes and things like that. And no, so that no, change. What,
0: a gallon?
1: Yeah, that, that change <laughs> happened as well. But also, we saw a proliferation starting in the early 1970s of fast food establishments in Detroit. And interestingly, one of the reasons that came about is after the calls for black power in the ni- late 1960s, US President Richard Nixon instituted a program to try to create franchises black owned franchises of fast food restaurants and so a lot of black people got into the fast food franchise business because the federal government was promoting that and opening up opportunities for that to happen wow. so you had people like Grady keys in detroit who own multiple burger kings and you had other folks in the city who own multiple uh, fast food restaurants so that's another change that we saw so that began to change people's dietary habits. Now, when I was growing up, I remember when I first saw Burger King, it was kind of a novel thing because they had a little conveyor belt. And you could watch the burger go under the flame. And, you know, before that, it was all about uh, a White Castle, or top hat or something like that. You know, or they had, you know, a little smaller in the Still neighborhood. Still love
0: White Castle. Oh,
1: my God. Hamburger joints. But <laughs> when, when Burger King came, it was like, a, wow, this is something new and different. Uh, but it, you know now that's the norm. You know right. that's what most people are, are growing up with. So it's changed our dietary habits also, and so that's changed the demand for fresh fruits and vegetables. You know a lot of a lot of folks are not uh, are not preparing fresh fruits and vegetables. The other thing, and I, I'll end it at this. You know I grew up in the post World War II era when a lot of women went to work. You know during right. World War II, a lot of women were forced to go to work because men were in the military. And uh, after, you know, they got a taste of that, of being out in the working world, women were not going to go back to just being in the home. Yeah. And so, you know, my mother and father both worked at the post office, you know, full time. And so it was a time period when a lot of women were looking for convenience. And so, you know, during my childhood, TV dinners were a big thing. That was a new novel thing. And thing, products like Rice-A-Roni were coming out and instant macaroni and frozen foods and so all of those kind of convenience things also changed the way we were eating where people weren't preparing as many foods from scratch you know whole foods from scratch they were buying things that they could easily make because you know folks were tired after they got off from working all day
0: and i I remember distinctly when we got our first microwave Mm. and my mama stopped cooking <laughs> like she was like, fuck that. I'm not cooking though. I mean, not literally stop cooking. Yeah. But that absolutely changed everything in our household. Yeah. You know. Um,
1: so, you know, I never had a microwave. In fact, I've never had a microwave in my life, period. Really? Like, yeah, really. Growing up, we never had a microwave. But I can see, you know, I don't want to blame women because that's certainly not what we should be doing because in a sense, women were locked into this role of having to, you know, be the primary cooks in the house. You know, that's what society expected. And so, you know, a lot of women were trying to break, break free from that. And so the convenience provided a way to do it. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a double-edged yeah, sword, it is. But, but I don't want to blame women for, you know, for the, for the, you know, the lack of cooking. Cause again, they were trying to free themselves up from the kind of uh, suppression that being locked to the kitchen.
0: As men, I don't think that we show women how valuable they really were.
1: Yeah, well, that's an ongoing issue, you know, and I I would uh, I always encourage men uh, to really examine how this system we call patriarchy has affected how we think about ourselves and how we think about women. You know, and I I was raised in a society where, you know, most of us were taught that men are the leaders of the family and that women are to submit and be obedient, all these kinds of concepts. And so all that stuff still permeates our consciousness, even those of us who are trying to get rid of that thinking. It's Mm -hmm. a lifelong process. So, yeah, we do need to lift women up. Uh, We need to lift up the feminine energy. And also, I would say, you know, from looking at my own life, that men can't be whole. Unless we acknowledge the feminine energy inside of us, also, you know, part of growing up in Detroit, for example, I told you I went to Post Junior High School, mm-hmm. um, and you know, Post was was a rough a, a rough school, and you know, people's getting jumped on, and and so you develop a persona to learn how to move through that, you know, how you how you walk, how yeah. you talk, you know, you got to have a certain amount of swag, because if you don't have some swag, you might get beat down. And so black men end up putting on this hyper-masculine mask in order to survive in a hostile environment. But it's a mask. It's not our real self. And a lot of times that mask causes us to to, to invisibilize and to not identify with the feminine energy that's inside of us. And so we can't be whole as men. All of us have a mother and father. And so if we're not acknowledging half of what makes us who we are, we can't be whole. And, you know, part of what the feminine energy addresses is things like intuition and creativity and, you know, seeing things in a more holistic way. And so, you know, we hear the term a lot of times toxic masculinity. And so the lack of those kind of things, the lack of tuning into that energy is often what makes how we show up as men somewhat toxic. And so I would just encourage all the men who are listening to really do a, you know, self-examination and to to work with other men to rid ourselves of these false concepts and to be able to show up in the world as full sane human beings and to and to treat women in a in a way that you know is is worthy of of you know oh, by people who understand that they're they're you know full sane human beings we need to treat women with the utmost respect absolutely and not um, just not just treat women with respect but also lift them up right as leaders because you know all too often, you know, men are the leaders of everything in, in this society and women bring particular insights that we need for the society to advance and be whole. In fact, I would, I would go so far as to say that if there's any salvation for humanity, part of what's going to cause that salvation is us embracing the feminine energy and moving humanity into a new level of consciousness.
0: It depends on the woman. <laughs> like, like I, I'll take a sister. I don't, I don't know about. No, I mean, I don't get myself in trouble. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, didn't want Hillary Clinton to be president. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> um, has, has there has, what is the government doing for our farmers? As a matter of fact, let, 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 I looked up something. Um, and let me see what, where, where was that? Because there was a law that they that they enacted that was supposed to help actually it was uh the american rescue plan act of 2021 that was supposed to help our black farmers they turned around and repealed that the next year under biden um and i want to say the brother's name is john boyd who's like the president of the black farmers association and he has been fighting tooth and nail to try Mm -hmm. to get some assistance for our black farmers are 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 we dying off as as farmers
1: so that's a complicated question so first of all what you said is absolutely correct you know there was an effort during the pandemic early pandemic to provide some relief based on the historical discrimination that the usda has shown towards black farmers and the historical favoring of white farmers and channeling money to white farmers but when that law was passed a lot of white farmers said this is discrimination in reverse And they, you know, they were crying and screaming. And so it was, the law was reversed. And so this is kind of the history of, you know, in this country that, you know, white people seem to feel that whenever black people advance or other people of color advance, that somehow we're stepping into their territory, we're taking part of their resources. And this is part of why we see this very dangerous political environment that we're in now. Mm -hmm. Many white people feel like they're going to be replaced that their advantage and their privilege in society is going to be replaced by black people and Mexicans and other people with more melanin in their skin. Um, But, you know, and there are ongoing efforts to try to remedy some of these wrongs that have been done by the USDA and by the federal government in general. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's important that that we support those efforts, but I think what's more important is what we do for ourselves, right? I mean, I don't think we should be waiting on the U.S. government to do the right thing. It would be nice if they did, mm-hmm. but I'm not I'm not waiting on that, because we'll be waiting, I think, for some more you know, generations, hundreds of years or whatever. What we can do is mobilize our own resources to do everything we can do on our own accord. Okay. Now, if we get help from the government, cool, but we shouldn't be sitting back waiting for that.
0: So what can rich like like why aren't rich black people buying by not only farms? but grocery stores, like they, we got a million clothing and I'm not, I sell clothes myself. I'm not being disrespectful to anybody's brand or anything like that. We got liquor, we got clothes, we got this, that, and the third. What we don't have is the necessities. We don't have water, we don't have land, and we don't have food. How can we convince this next generation of rich black people that we need to tap into the food?
1: So the the problem is this, that Usually, by the time you go through the process of becoming a rich black person, you have internalized the ideas of American society about individualism. And I don't want to say all rich black people, I I don't even know if I know it. I may know one or two rich black people, I don't know, I don't know many. So, I can't speak on you know, from personal experience with a lot of them, but it seems to me that most rich black people are not geared towards helping the black community as a whole most of them are trying to see how they can help themselves and their family because that's kind of the American ethic you know this rugged yeah. individualism but that doesn't work for us the only way we're going to advance in this society is by doing it collectively and how we convince wealthy black people that they need to be working for the benefit of the masses of black people I'm not quite sure and again that I, I would say I don't think we need to wait on that you know i think we need to mobilize whatever resources we have within our city, and we do have resources we don't have to wait on lebron james or you know or 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 drake or whoever you know to give millions of dollars you know we got money within our own community we buy we buy 200 gym shoes we pay all kind of money to go to concerts you know we got the flashiest cars with rims there's money in our community so i think the thing we need to figure out is how do we mobilize that now if we can get some wealthy black people on board for example, uh, you know, one of the projects we're working on—we're building a grocery store in Detroit—and there was a member of the Detroit Lions. He's no longer playing for the Lions. He's no longer playing professional uh, football. Mm-hmm. And I, I won't say his name, but I'll say he made a very sizable donation to this project that we're working on. So there are some wealthy black people. You know, mm-hmm. I don't put them all in one category. There are some that are supporting. Why, why
0: not say his name though?
1: Because he wanted to be low key about it. You know, he didn't. Wow. He he wasn't doing it for the publicity. He was doing yeah,
0: my my thing is is that and, and I've been saying this for years, is that at some point we need to make giving back popular.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what? I will say his name. I won't say the amount he gave. His okay. name is DeAndre Levy. Okay. And he he ended up, you know, quitting the NFL and he's been doing some writing about some of the toxic male culture and abuse of women within the NFL. Very progressive thinking, brother. Um, and there's other wealthy black people that have contributed. For example, when Prince died, uh, information came out. In fact, Van Jones released information about all of the things, many of the things that Prince had supported quietly, not doing it for publicity. Mm -hmm. So so I just want to say that although I think most wealthy black people are imbued with the sense of individualism, there are some who are supporting community causes and many of them are doing it quietly without trying to get publicity. But again, I don't think we should be waiting on that. We should, the average black person needs to see how can we unite with the people in our neighborhood and put whatever dollars we have together and our energy together to make things happen? And then if wealthy black people jump on board and put resources toward it, it's, it's all the better. But we shouldn't yeah. wait on it.
0: I feel you on that. Where, where's the uh, grocery store at?
1: Uh, we're building a building called the Detroit Food Commons on the northeast corner of Woodward and Euclid in Detroit's north end. So we're building a twenty two million dollar building, two story building that will house the Detroit People's Food Co-op, a community-owned grocery store on the second floor of the building will have four shared-use kitchens that food entrepreneurs can rent out in a 3,000-square-foot community meeting space where we can hold lectures and film screenings and wedding receptions and things like that.
0: And when, when are you planning on opening?
1: Uh, we're expecting construction to be finished next August, and we think the doors will be open next October. The building is about... Uh, a third complete now all four walls are up all the steel is in place they're doing a little bit more welding this week they're putting the roof decking on and uh, they started putting the facing bricks on the outside of the building so we, we made significant progress we broke ground on April 23rd again it's about a third finish now uh, it's scheduled to be completed next August
0: and who 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 specifically is, is building this like like is it your your group or so our organization
1: yeah, our organization, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, partnered with a professional developer called Develop Detroit Incorporated, headed by a black woman named Sonia Mays, and we kind of were connected by one of my high school friends who lives in Atlanta who does development and had met Sonia and heard she was coming back to Detroit to start this uh, this development, nonprofit development firm. And so we connected, we talked, we talked, we talked, we worked out an agreement and so we are jointly building this building. We jointly own the building. We jointly went out to the financing for it. Uh, but the land that the building is on is is being built on is owned by the organization I lead, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network.
0: That's fucking dope, bro.
1: It is fucking dope. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes, that, why, haven't, like, why haven't I heard of this already? I don't know. But now, you know. Oh my God! And I, this is not going to be the last time I talk about this either. Now,
1: said, if you don't know, now you know.
0: Yeah, but we th- this should be some shit that we should be talking about.
1: Absolutely, but well, that's what we're doing right now. We're talking about it
0: now. Oh my God! Uh, so
1: it's a it's a it's a, a, a what do you call it? A, a it's a pioneering effort. There's not many things like this that exist in the United States where black people are leading a development on this scale. And so it's generated a lot of uh, excitement in the city of Detroit, both among people in the neighborhood, you know, in the neighborhoods by people in the city government, by activists. It's got broad, broad support. A lot of people are looking at this as a model of what can be done in black communities throughout the United States.
0: Yo, and it's crazy. Somebody just takes me literally sure the fuck is dope. Uh, do you know Fame uh, that owns the 313 store?
1: Yes, I do. Uh, as a matter of fact, Fame, I met Fame through a brother named Shaka Senghor, and I've heard of that guy. Shaka Senghor, he's, like, he's written a couple of best-selling books on the New York Times best-selling list. But he's from Detroit, and he did some time. And he's got a fascinating story. He, he was in the dope game. He got shot, ended up shooting somebody, ended up killing somebody, went to prison for... Uh, a number of years, I think close to 20 years. I can't remember how many years exactly, but and <laughs> Fame did some time together. And so I used to own a bookstore called Black Star Community Bookstore on Livinois and Outer Drive. And when I closed the bookstore, uh, I sold a lot of my equipment to Shaka and Fame because they were considering opening a store. That never happened, but uh, Shaka ended up going to the West Coast. And he's like a big, he's blown up. No, yeah, my, my,
0: I try to get him on my show, but I'm, I'm not worthy.
1: But fame went on to open, you know, Detroit <laughs> 313. And, you know, first he was down on uh, Jefferson. And now he got a spot on Living there, right near where my bookstore used to be, as a matter of fact. So he's he's doing big things. You know, I have big respect for that, brother.
0: The only re- the reason I brought it up is because as far as marketing goes, that guy is ph- fucking phenomenal. And I'm absolutely certain. Like, yeah, Like, you could benefit from... Just some great marketing.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll go in there and holler at him sometime soon. But we know each other. We're cool. And I, you know, I support yeah. what you are doing. And
0: yeah. Oh, my God. So how much farmland does the, do, 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 do black people own now? Approximately.
1: Uh, you know, I don't have that statistic in my head. But I'll say that it's down significantly from around 1910 or so when it was at its height. And you know, people can Google that. That's it's all over the internet. Those statistics. Mm. I just don't. I don't keep a lot of statistics in my head.
0: I feel you on that. I understand. Uh, But basically, uh, it's it's basically down to nothing. Well, it's not down down to to say nothing, nothing, but comparatively speaking.
1: And 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 let me say this. Uh, You asked me earlier about our black farmers disappearing. So it's a twofold story. So we still got these ongoing uh, instances of discrimination by the USDA and the, the government. But Mm -hmm. also you have a new crop of young black farmers across the country. You know, many of them coming from urban areas who have an intense interest in farming and are trying to find land and are doing urban farming all over this country. And so you have this new wave of black people, young black people who are very interested in farming. So both of those realities exist simultaneously.
0: Okay, so I come to you. I say, hey, you know what? I want to start growing something in my backyard. I want to start urban farming. What's the what's the the the. Easiest thing I can grow successfully to give me some confidence.
1: Uh, well, let me say this. Before you grow anything, the first thing you want to do is have your soil tested. Because in a place like Detroit, mm-hmm. you know, depending on where you're growing, there could have been a house there that had lead paint where the house was demolished and just dumped into the hole. And you got lead in the soil. You don't want to be growing food that causes lead poisoning in, person, in people. You might be on a lot where maybe there was a former gas station where mm-hmm. gas... You know, and they used to have leaded gas when I was a child, right? They, have, they sell unleaded gas now. But back in the day, they had gas with lead in it. That might have leached into the soil. You have vacant lots where maybe there was some industry or no, maybe there was a dry cleaners like we were building the grocery store. We had to take out six feet of soil. We had to do $700,000 of soil remediation, take out six feet of soil and replace it with clean soil because there used to be a dry cleaners there. And dry cleaners use chemicals that had leached into the soil and again you don't want that those toxins to be in the food so the first thing is make sure your soil is safe but in terms of growing things that are easy to grow and be successful you can be successful i would recommend the number one choice would be collard greens it's almost impossible to mess up some collard greens
0: i hate collard greens
1: you hate collard greens man you have to check in your black card
0: i know man i've been (laughs) told i've been told that (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: you ain't you, right bro
1: <laughs> but you know what now just to uh to make it fair i don't like okra either so people told me i need to check in my black card too
0: because i okay, like, oh, ain't oh, too many oh, people this, this this side of the mason dixon that like okra though. all
1: well i don't know I, I know quite a few people in fact i was with a woman for several years she loved okra and i didn't and so you know so that <laughs> When she cooked some with okra, she would take all the okra out and put it on her plate, and that worked out just fine for me. But, but collard greens are pretty easy to grow. You have to manage the insects because there's some little insects called aphids that really like collard greens. So you have to manage those, but they're easy to grow. Uh, tomatoes are easy to grow also. I would recommend tomatoes. Green beans are really easy to grow. Um, you know, those would be three things I would say people can start off with and will probably have a great deal of success.
0: Okay. Politics. Are, 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 are Democrats helping us at all in, 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 with respect to farming?
1: You know, I'm not really into like Democrats, Republicans. I'm not too much into that because I don't think none of them are on our side, frankly, when it comes to black people really being free. I don't mm-hmm. think none of them are standing up strong on, on our behalf. Uh, so, you know, I'm more for, you know, we do what we have to do for ourselves and whoever we can get to support, whatever their political label is, you know, we try to we try to make that happen. But I don't see any groundswell of support for um, what we call Black food sovereignty, meaning getting Black people out of this position where we're dependent upon others for our food. I don't see any groundswell of support for that from either Democrats or Republicans, frankly. I,
0: I don't see it. <laughs> Do you do you foresee that happening for us?
1: Um, again, I'm not really tied. I don't look at our destinies being tied to what somebody else does.
0: I'm not even talking about. I'm talking about within within our own community. Do you think that at some point, in let's say the next hundred years, we've we've come um, around to our own food sovereignty?
1: Well, I certainly hope so. But you know that question depends on how on what we do. If we continue to to act a fool and to not act on our own behalf and to not act collectively, then we're gonna be continually dependent upon others. If we begin to wake up, which I think we are doing slowly, you know, bit by bit by bit, and begin to put in place the structures that are needed to be more self-reliant, then we can have a future that looks much, much different. It could go either way, but it depends on the choices that we make. And so this is really important because we all have an obligation to consciously act to build black food sovereignty But also to build black self reliance in general. We have to, it's a conscious thing you have to do. You know, when you're spending your money, you know, is there a black place I can spend my money? And is there a black place that's dedicated to benefiting the black community? Because just because you spend money with the black person doesn't necessarily mean the black community is going to benefit. A lot of black people are just out for themselves. So we have to spend money with black operations that have the, the welfare of our community at heart. So, you know, I'm hopeful that more and more of us will wake up and will join in this movement to become more self-reliant and more self-sufficient and more food sovereign. I'm hopeful and I'm working towards it. And I see many people getting on board and beginning to support it. And one of the things that we have to do to get people to support is create concrete examples, like Mm -hmm. the farm that we grow, that, that we run. It's not just an idea, it's something people can actually come and see and participate in and buy produce. For most of our people, You know, we see things with our physical eyes. We don't see things with our third eye. We don't see stuff that doesn't yet exist in the physical world. So we have to show our people examples. The same thing with this grocery store we're building. It's not just rhetoric. We're not just talking about black people need to have our own grocery. No, we're building it. We're making it happen. And so that changes people's consciousness when they can see in the concrete world some things that actually make their life better. And so that's the kind of strategy that we're using.
0: I can't wait to be able to take my grandbabies to that grocery store.
1: We're looking for you.
0: Oh, my God. I'm, I'm, have to, I'm absolutely going to send this this episode to my... Because I got two daughters, two adult daughters in Detroit still. And I got three grandbabies. Okay. And I can't wait to be able to say, okay, we got our own grocery store. Matter of fact, I interviewed that guy.
1: Yes. <laughs> so it's not just me, you know. I'm one of the main spokespersons for, it and I, you know, I provided a lot of the leadership. But it's a whole, a whole crew of us doing this. It's not just one or two people. These, this, this kind of work is not done by individuals. It's done by collectives. And so, you know, one of the most important things that we have to learn how to do is to get in organizations. And that's something a lot of times Black people don't want to do because it means that we have to submit our individual ideas to the group. And it's a, a sometimes a messy process. you got 20 people trying to figure out how to get them all on the same accord. It's not an easy thing to do, but yeah. it's the only way that we can move forward by, by doing it collectively. We can't do any of these big ventures trying to do it individually.
0: And you know what? I saw you uh, give a presentation. I, I, it was in Baltimore. I, I, I can't remember exactly specifically where, but you thanked the people that grew the food you thank the people that put together the, the event, you thank the people that were serving like you thank all the thankless, the people that never get thanked yeah, and that
1: was I a, that was it John Hopkins Johns Hopkins.
0: Okay University. I've never seen that before.
1: Yeah, it's important. you know the food system employs lots and lots and lots of people. you know my son, I have a 30 year old son who lives here with me and he works mm-hmm. in a restaurant as a cook. A lot of black people work in restaurants and other aspects of the food industry, but they're they're not recognized. You know, we see food show up on our plate, and we don't really realize the people that put the labor into that. People that work in restaurants are paid deplorable wages. And because it's expected they're going to make it up with tips, some restaurants take the tips from workers, some restaurants pool all the tips together and then divide them up among. And so you know, restaurant workers and lots of people in the food industry are exploited. And so we yeah. need to thank them. In fact, one time I was in Mali, West Africa, and we were I was in a band with a few people, about seven people. We were driving down the road and we saw this elder on the side of the road and um, he actually had a rifle posted up next to him. We said, let's go over and talk to this guy. And so he greeted us. And then after we got through talking, he pointed across the road. He said, you need to go over there and greet the farmers. And he said you have to greet the farmers because it's those who work in the sun who make it possible for those who work in the shade and so that really stuck with me that Hmm. the people who produce our food who grow our food and in this country frankly a lot of the people doing a lot of the growing of the food are migrant workers that are coming from mexico and other spanish-speaking countries in central america or south america and many of them are exploited and abused. And so we need to have them in mind as we dig into our plate. That they put some labor in and weren't paid fairly and often weren't treated fairly, and that labor is what allows us to have food that's cheap. We don't think food is cheap, but if we we're paying the real price for it, if we we're paying workers really what they should be paid, food would cost much more than what it costs now. But the same mm-hmm. thing, you got people that work in the meatpacking industry, which is very dangerous, that are losing hands and losing fingers and you know, often don't have health insurance and working while they're sick. All these kind of things. The workers within the food system need to be lifted up. So that's why I do that.
0: I did not know that about the meatpacking industry.
1: Yeah. I just assume the shit
0: just shows up in the grocery store.
1: No, shit don't just show up. People (laughs) (laughs) People are involved in the process. You know, if you think back to COVID in the beginning, there were several meatpacking plants that were closed down because COVID was spreading like wildfire those plans and so and again many of those workers don't have health insurance and so you know it's just it's it's a really messed up system where a lot of workers in the food system are exploited and many of those workers on the bottom rung of the food system are black and brown people but the people the executives in the higher paying jobs the management they're invariably white people and so you know we see racism in every aspect of american society
0: yeah that you know and, and white people see they see South Africa in this country, and they're trying to. And what I mean by that is is the changing of the guard, so to speak. And they're trying to prevent that in this country, and it's in, like at some point you're gonna numerically you're gonna be outnumbered significantly.
1: It's so you it's can a, you a futile can, battle. It's a feudal battle. So really, what's happening on the global level? At one point, white people controlled the planet people from europe you know from britain in fact britain had a plan in africa they said they want to control the cape to cairo meaning the cape of good hope in south africa all the way up to cairo and egypt and they mm-hmm. damn near did it uh between the, the the english the french the belgians and a few other yeah. African yeah. countries i mean a few other european countries they control all of africa with the exception of liberia and ethiopia uh, and you know vietnam the united states was involved in a war in vietnam because the Vietnamese were trying to get their independence after being colonized by the French. India was colonized by the British. So at one point white people controlled the whole damn planet basically. And so that power dynamic is changing and it's changing in the United States also, as you said, the numbers, you know, people talk about 2040 when by that time white people will be the numerical minority and people of color will be the majority. And so lots of white people are scared, but, during this time period where they're scared that they're being replaced, it's a very dangerous time period. And we've seen, you know, evidence of that with the former U.S. president, with the Proud Boys, with the, 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 the chilling of the person at the demonstration in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of examples of the danger that exists in this time period as white people are seeing their power diminish. But it's a futile fight. It's a rap. Right. White supremacy is on the way out. There's nothing they can do to stop it. They're going to try to fight you know every do everything they can try to do but it's, it doesn't matter it's a futile effort they're on the way out as far as rulers of the planet and we're going to see black people and the people of color rising up and determining our own destiny and changing the face of politics on the on the earth
0: i don't know if it's going to see i'm i'm one of those people that i i, I shy away from the people of color term
1: I don't i don't use it that much either i'm not in love with it frankly
0: yeah, I, don't, I don't believe that there is a, a harmonious belief amongst all people of color.
1: No, no, I don't either. And I wasn't suggesting that by using that term. Uh, you know, part of the one of the deficiencies of language is, you know, you try to use words that people understand. But yeah. I'm not saying, you know, all people who are black, brown, yellow people around the world agree. That's, certainly that's not the case. Mm-hmm. I the power dynamic on the planet is changing it's
0: absolutely shifting
1: right and so we see for example the united states very worried about china. china china is a global superpower now you know 100 years ago you know 1919 when it had the Boxer rebellion you know uh china was largely controlled by by the british and you had you know opium in china lots of people were addicted they turned yep. that country around and now it's a global superpower And similarly, you see all around the world this power dynamic shifting, not to say all people who are black, brown, yellow agree with each other, but the global power dynamic is changing and the power dynamic in the United States is changing.
0: Absolutely. What, what, what can we learn from the Chinese?
1: Uh, We can learn, you know, lots of things from the Chinese. uh, But, you know, when people compare black people in this country to other ethnic groups, I'm always cautious because Mm -hmm. the Chinese didn't go through what we went through. We went through a process of enslavement that Mm -hmm. intentionally separated us from our culture, our language, our names. Chinese people still speak Chinese. yeah, And they got Chinese names.
0: And they can go back thousands of years.
1: You're not going to China and meet somebody named Bob Johnson. Right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, you're not.
1: They have their culture intact which gives them a sense of group identity. Yeah. In our case, every effort was made to separate us from our, from our historical memory, from our language, from our culture, from our name, and to imbue us with a sense of self hatred. And so now we, the
0: West Side don't even like the East Side, let alone Toledo, like in Detroit, or Detroit, like in New York, or whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We, we find all kinds of ways to divide ourselves. It's rooted in self hatred, though. Well, it's rooted in a couple of things. One is rooted in wanting to feel powerful. So if you don't control anything, in the society, you know, if you can control the block you on, or you know, if you can create a gang and y'all control the streets for a few blocks, that gives you a sense of power that you're in control of something. Yeah. When really we don't really control anything on a on, on a you know serious level. And so there's that wanting to feel powerful, but also it's the kind of sense of if you don't like yourself. You know if you've been taught to hate yourself, then you probably don't like the people around you who look like you also.
0: And I don't think collectively we've we've hit rock bottom yet.
1: No, we, we haven't hit rock bottom, but I can tell you we were much farther ahead collectively than we were, let's say, in the 1950s. Right? We we have You think so? Yeah, I think so. In terms of our consciousness, not necessarily in terms of our physical condition, but the sixties. You know, at least gave us some kind of basic sense of black pride. Yeah, to some extent, still exists. Yeah, you know, and, and so I mean, we got a lot of a lot of work to do still, but we we have a kind of basic sense of black pride that maybe you know we didn't have s- so much before that time period. We still have lots and lots of work to do.
0: You know what I really hate is is the motherfuckers to be like, well, oh, we ain't we ain't like our grandparents. Which is supposed, they they saying it like it's a slander, but they really don't know. No, you're not like your grandparents, because your grandparents were actually willing to die for what they believed in. You aren't. You're not going to fight for anything except that block that you don't even own.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I hear people say that all the time. If I was in slavery, they would have done that to me. I would have done this and that. You would have did shit. Nothing. Right? right? But got your ass whipped. That's what you, you would have done. So I, I hear all that talk, too. You know, there's a T-shirt that some activists wear saying we are not our ancestors, you know, kind of diminishing. Uh, So, I mean, we have this tremendous history, but also, you know, we had a sense of self-hatred that that was disrupted to some extent in the 1960s by James Brown, you know, uh, you know, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, the black power movement, the black theology movement where people started putting black Christ in churches and trying to, you know, trying to break that monopoly on our mind. So we made some progress in that regard we got a lot of work to do still but i'll say this i, I just came back about a week ago from cameroon in central africa
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know in one of the grocery stores you know they had little barbie dolls all white barbie dolls this is all black country but white barbie dolls they have white santa claus that's for sale in the supermarket you know and so a lot of things that we take for granted here you know that kind of diminished sense of self still exist in other parts of the African world. Uh, mm. Places like uh, Puerto Rico, for example, and many other places in the African world, light-skinned people are still seen as being more beautiful and maybe even here in the United States too. You know, yeah. A lot of black people see light-skinned, you know, Becky with the good hair or whatever, you know, as being more beautiful than a dark sister <laughs> with, with, with nappy hair. So, you know, but in other parts of the world, a lot of times they haven't even started to address it, at least Africans in America, we've addressed it to some extent we still sick we still got a lot of work to do but we have started mm-hmm. on that road of yeah. addressing some of that who,
0: who do you who do you look well I won't say look to but as far as leadership in our community who do you feel comfortable with passing the mantle to
1: I think we had to reconceptualize this whole idea of leadership because we're we're used to this idea of this individual singular charismatic leader Mm -hmm. and it's time out for that because what invariably happens is somebody puts a bullet in the head of that one person or puts that person in jail or defames the person or whatever and then the whole thing collapses so we can't have a movement that's based on individual charismatic leadership we need broader deeper leadership in our community you know we don't need saviors we need black people to get organized and we all play leadership roles in different ways right and so I'm, in, I'm more in favor of that kind of leadership. And I see a whole crew of young people coming up who are activists, you know, uh, you know, and some of them, I think, need to do more study of what the history has been and all that. But there's a whole crew of young people who are who are absolutely dedicated to, to liberating black people and making improvements in the black community. And so I may not see eye to eye with them on every issue, but I'm encouraged by this new wave of activism. And, you know, whether we want to or not, we're going to have to pass the baton to them.
0: you know, like Detroit is as far as activism goes and and it's hard to explain. let Let me backtrack a little bit because it's hard to explain the sense of power that black people in Detroit inherently grow up with because and I've tried to explain this to people over the years. But when you go to court, the prosecutor looks like you, the judge looks like you, the cops that arrested you, odds are they look like you. You're, you're, in yeah, Detroit,
1: that's changing. In Detroit, let me tell you that it it, it what but, was the case in the seventies and eighties that most of the police were black after Coleman Young yeah, and then he changed, yeah. but now the majority of police are white. Okay, yeah. I did not.
0: I I've been arrested in Detroit in a long time, so
1: uh, <laughs> personal experience. The last time I was arrested, it was a, it was a white a white police officer. But you know when I got to court. And I, I I we got in the courtroom and I looked up and the judge had a bow tie on made a kit chinte cloth. I was like, I'm in there like swimwear. So right. Well I hear what but, you said.
0: Yeah, because it gives you a sense of of of, of value. Yeah. That even in, in your lowest time, there's somebody there that identifies with you on some level. Yes. And when you leave Detroit. I've heard that all the the, people from Detroit are arrogant, not arrogant. We just understand our value. Yes. And we've been taught that without even been being, it wasn't like a conscious. I had a class value one-on-one. No, it was just shit. I saw growing up and you didn't get that opportunity.
1: I agree with you a hundred percent. And I have a chance to travel around the country a lot and speak different places around the country. And I've noticed exactly what you're saying. It being from Detroit, it gives me a certain amount of a certain boldness and a certain confidence yeah. yes. because the Detroit I grew up in, like you say, we had black judges, black school board, black city council, black police chief, black fire chief, black every damn thing. In fact, Detroit is the blackest city in North America. But it's a double-edged sword, though. Well, two things. One is changing. I mean, clearly, mm-hmm. we don't have a black mayor anymore in the city
0: of Detroit. It just kills me.
1: Ugh. It kills me, too. Right. So, I mean, it's changing. But the other side of it is this, that in a certain sense, we're victims of our own success because you have a whole generation, a couple generations of black people who have grown up in Detroit, seeing black people in all these positions of power. So we take it for granted. Yeah. And so the struggle always has two aspects. You have to obtain power, but then you have to maintain it once you get it. And so because we have young people grown up and just take for granted that black people are running everything. They haven't done the work to safeguard those things. And now some of those things are being snatched back. And the fact that there's a white mayor in Detroit, a city that's 80% black, is probably the number one indicator of that.
0: So fucking embarrassing. Ridiculous. How how come you never ran for, or or, or am I unaware, you never ran for office?
1: No, I never ran for office, and I never will run for office. Because I really don't think that's the path to black empowerment. I mean, I think it's important that we have politicians that support our struggle. But there's only so much that can be done through electoral politics. I'm much more rooted in doing grassroots community work and building community power in the community from the ground up. I'm not really cut out to be a politician. I don't talk out of both sides of my mouth. Why,
0: why haven't we bought Highland Park and started over?
1: You know, that's a good question. And I've, many times I've said to people, you know, Highland Park is 2.6 miles. If we got 100 people, we could organize and, and, and have control of Highland Park. But, you know, again... Marcus Garvey said a hundred years ago that disorganization is the greatest tool used against the Negro, and so same thing today because we're disorganized, we can't, uh, you know, achieve the greatness that we need to achieve. Well, other people come in, and they got a plan, and they implement that plan, and they start running stuff. And so, you know, we need to, we need to figure out how we control all of the spaces that we're in, uh, and, and control the psychic space inside our head. That's Man. the most important space. Man.
0: And I'm trying to think of the brother's name. I want to say it was Youssef something. Because there was a brother. Say that again.
1: Youssef Shakur. Bunchy. Youssef Bunchy Shakur. Not not, not him.
0: Not him? No. But shout out to him. Uh, What is it? But there was another brother that was talking about purchasing Highland Park. And I can't remember. I had him on the show probably like six years ago.
1: Yeah, I I heard a few people talking about it. But it hadn't happened.
0: It hadn't happened. It hasn't happened. Yeah, and that's that therein lies the rub. It's like we have a lot of people sometimes you gotta just show up and, and show up with the results. Yeah, that's cool. the American way. People in America are like and we have make no mistake, we are Americans. You know, as much as we wanna run from that shit, we have all been to some extent Americanized. We may have learned the true way of shit, but deep down there's still some American shit in this.
1: Yeah, no no doubt. Uh You know, I take some exception to that, but I I don't, it's a minor point. I don't even want to get into it right now.
0: Knock yourself out, bro. You at home, man.
1: Yeah, I know. It's just in the total scheme of things we need to talk about, that's not that important. So (laughs) I don't want to go down there and wrap it over. (laughs) But certainly, certainly I agree with you that we have been influenced by being in America for the last 400 years. No doubt about that. We've been deeply influenced. Yes. It's deep in our psyche. uh, And so I, I don't disagree with that.
0: And I was kind of going back to a point you made earlier this is pretty much that, that you know like we only going to buy into success. We don't really want to we don't want to see the beginning, we want to see the end. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we tweeting about you, you're our best friend, I love yeah. your mama, we kissing babies, the whole nine. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Musically, where you at, bro?
1: Oh, so I lead a band called Molly Wap. and you can see I kind of strategically got Uh, Got this thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can see that.
1: Posted up back here. Uh, So this is our our website, mollywapdams.com. So it's a band based in Detroit. And uh, we we play around the city quite a bit. I play guitar. You can probably see my guitar back there behind me. Um, But we do a variety of music. We do funk. We Mm do reggae. We do some kind of rock-tinged stuff. We do... Ah, uh, some stuff that probably people would say is R&B. But the thing about our music, all the music is conscious. It's not, you know, okay. we're not singing about bitches and hoes and degrading women or, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, we're singing about, you know, how do we get ourselves out of this situation? And we're singing about reparations and we're singing about uh, uh, gentrification and, and things like that. So, you know, I, I would t- I encourage people to go check us out and go to our website, um, which again is Mollywapjams.com.
0: I had to make sure you got the plug in bro yeah,
1: I got to make sure thank you bro I appreciate that <laughs> you know we're on IG we're on Instagram and on Instagram we're mollywapjams with the z um and you know we're all over the 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 internet you know you can see you can get our album on uh YouTube you can get it on SoundCloud you get it on Apple Music all the streaming services uh the album that we put out in 2019 is is uh, available and we're coming out with another album soon also
0: okay how long you been playing
1: man i've been playing since
0: 1971. oh bro longer than
1: i've
0: been breathing huh? I, 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 my start date was 72.
1: okay okay that was a good year i I remember 72. Before, before. <laughs> don't. <laughs> that's, that's the year superfly came out by the way uh which changed a whole lot of stuff you I, I don't know if you remember that movie superfly
0: come on man stop you it heard yes. But, um, yes yes i i remember that movie man but um <laughs> forgot
1: what i was gonna say uh oh Yo, yeah, what, was what, say. what was
0: the i'm sorry but what was that era like man the whole bell bottoms and big ass platforms and uh uh
1: i definitely had bell bottoms and big ass platforms in fact i had some <laughs> i had some blue suede platform you can tell me <laughs> <laughs> you
0: had suede shoes, blue,
1: platforms. Blue, platforms. They were actually <laughs> blue and red, man. And you know we had big bell bottoms, elephant leg bell bottoms, and you know, I mean, you know, we were trying to. A lot. It was largely a rebellion against the, the standards in society. You know, at that time, people were rebelling against everything in the society, and so the music was kind of a rebellion. The clothing was a bell- rebellion. The language we used was rebellion, and all of that uh so you know it was a great for me it was a great time period because that was my teenage years you know a lot of a lot of stuff happens in your teenage years so i got fond memories of that time period man
0: what was the riots like you remember the riots
1: yeah i was 11 in 1967 and let me say that most of us now call it a rebellion because when you think of a riot it just kind of you think of people just kind of running wild in the street but people were really rebelling against uh, oppression specifically rebelling against the way the police were treating black people uh but it was you know in some ways it was kind of scary time uh where i live on lawton and six Mile, there wasn't a whole lot of you know there wasn't burning and looting going on but mm-hmm. you know for example my relatives i mentioned earlier on montgomery and linwood they was in the thick of it right mm-hmm. and so every day you know i remember my family calling you know everybody was calling each other checking on each other Who's, you know, who's good? You good. You good. Do you need to come over here? You know, that kind of thing. But one of the things I remember most about it is in 1966, the year before the rebellion, I played Little League baseball on Central High School's field right down Linwood. Mm -hmm. In 1967, that became the military base for the Army. I forgot which Airborne Division. There were two Airborne, two Army divisions that came in Detroit. The 101st Airborne Division was on the east side and another one was on the west side based uh, at Central High School. So where mm-hmm. I played baseball the year before, there were helicopters and tanks and, and tents set up on the field at, at at Central High School. So that's what really, one of the things that stands out in my mind. Uh, but also I remember clearly seeing, driving down my street, um, police cars, they had four people in the car and they had two shotguns uh, pointed out the both, both back windows, you know, kind of at an angle. And so that's how they were rolling through the streets of Detroit. Uh, during 1967. Um, then also clearly I remember, you know, the the aftermath driving up and down. You know, I wasn't driving in, but you know, my father was driving me, showing me, uh, you know, on 12th Street, which is now called Rosa Parks, right. on Linwood, on Dexter, and seeing the buildings still smoldering that had been burned down. You know, so all of that impacted me, but also as a very young person, that's what kind of started me, the whole time period was kind of pregnant with black consciousness. And so that's when my consciousness started being molded. Mm -hmm. And then by 1969, when I heard that message to the grassroots by Malcolm X, when my teacher played it in the eighth grade classroom, that really kind of solidified it all for me and put me on the path I've been on since. Interestingly, that same year in that same classroom, the teacher played Jimi Hendrix's Band of Gypsies. And that's what made me want to start playing guitar. So the whole trajectory of my was life. teacher. His name. Well, there were two teachers actually, who were childhood friends, who had both moved to Detroit to teach. One was named Ronald McCombs, and he's an ancestor now. He was my history teacher. Mm-hmm. The other is named Melvin Peters, who was my English teacher, who is still alive. In fact, I talked to him about two weeks ago, and I'll be doing an mm-hmm. interview with him soon. But they both moved to Detroit from West Virginia in 1966 to teach in Detroit public schools. And they were both young, radical teachers themselves. So anyway, those experiences really shaped the trajectory of the rest of my life. I became a black activist because of hearing Malcolm X in that classroom. And I became a guitar player because of hearing Jimi Hendrix in that classroom. So that testifies to the power that, you know, teachers can have the exactly. you know, influence they can have on young people.
0: And, that, and, and you know what? That's the reason I asked you for their names.
1: I'm glad you asked that because I always want to lift their names up. You know no. these are real people you know th- this is real history and people can trace the history and you know go back and i'm so i'm, I'm so grateful to still be in touch with melvin peters like i said i talked so to him just before i went to africa we had a long conversation about an hour and a half and i'm going to do an interview with him in the next two weeks and capture his whole life history on video because i, I realized that understanding about him is necessary to fully understand
0: about myself so, and you know the the, the thing about uh, when you say that, my mother passed away two years ago, right, and like I appreciate that. I always wanted to, you know, I had always in my mind, I'm like I'm gonna interview my mother because I know my mother went through some shit. Yeah, and I I, I just never pulled the trigger on that, and that's one of my biggest regrets. Hmm. You know, so so if you abso- absolutely, man, if there's somebody that that, and it sounds like that cat was like an actual, like a serious catalyst for the trajectory of your life. Absolutely. You know, and and while I'm on it, shout out to Teresa Carroll, my my um English teacher in high school, who absolutely for years I have trumpeted her because she made a difference in my life as a child. You know, shout out to all the teachers out there that give a shit. Yeah, you know, that shit. People don't. You know, you may not hear hear or get the flowers, but they're blooming.
1: Yeah, you know, you I know. talked for between teaching and being a principal of a school. I was in education for thirty years, and I can tell you, it's pretty much a thankless work. People have no idea the sacrifice that teachers make, and a why, lot. Of,
0: why, why did you stop?
1: Um. I had to make a decision between my growing passion for food mm-hmm. and my passion for what I was doing as a school principal was diminishing by that time. Because by that time, I was basically, by the time something got to me, it was a problem. So what I did all day was solve problems, yeah. you know, student discipline issues, staff discipline issues, dealing with state authorities and all that. And none of those are the reasons I went into education. So my passion was diminishing, and I decided to follow my, my growing passion for food, and I'm so glad I did.
0: Yeah, me too, bro. Like, like you're an absolute legend.
1: Uh, well, you know, I ain't trying to be all that. I'm Just trying to be a humble servant to our to our people. And if people think I'm doing good work, then I, you know, I accept that. But I'm not trying to put myself on no kind of pedestal.
0: I mean, it's kind of in the job description. Most legends don't be like, "Oh, I want to set out to be a legend." <laughs> you know, now some of them do. You know, you got some arrogant cats out there. It's like, well, I want to be the best ever. You know, yeah. but generally speaking, you know, like, that's like a sports situation or, a, you know, it's already a competitive nature. But most people don't set out to be legends. But you've absolutely like, and I've tried, I'm telling you, I've been trying to get this interview for over a year. That's why I drove. for Anybody else, I just would be like, fuck it, man. We'll do the interview at some some other time. You know, but I know I'm not, you know, I, I have And shout out to Adrian. Um, definitely appreciate her. Um, and everything that she does as far as, you know, like like getting out and about and doing shit with our people. Um, I, I just got a microphone and some headphones, and, and I talk to people.
1: That's all good. Now, it's important, you know, talking to people. And also, you know, documenting our history, like doing those interviews with the elders in our family. That's very important because there's so, so much of our history that is not in any books or, or recording anywhere. And it might be stuff that we think is just mundane day-to-day stuff, But we need to capture all of that stuff, you know, stories from our parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, and capture their recipes and, you know, just little slices of life because it helps us understand ourselves more.
0: Okay, speaking of that, and I'm not gonna hold you up too long um, because you've already went way. I can't thank you enough. However, okay, so you get a, 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 somebody asked you to do a video time capsule for your grandkids. Give me three things you want to leave with them
1: uh so the first thing is what really motivates me at the core what i'm doing is my spiritual understanding so Mm -hmm. i'm not tied to any religion but i'm a very spiritual person and i think part of what was done to us during our enslavement was an attempt to disconnect us from our own divinity Mm -hmm. so the Almighty Creator, however you conceive that force that creates order in the universe, is inside of us. We're not disconnected from that. We're divine beings, and you know we walk around in this body for a while, for a few years, and then we shed that. But our essence is really connected to to the to the Almighty, to the to the divine. And so once you realize that about yourself, you're not going to accept being second class anything. And you go manifest the fullness of what you were created to be. And so that would be the first thing that I want to leave to my grandchildren to realize and embrace your divinity. The second thing I would want to leave with my grandchildren is to be a man or woman of your word. This is a simple thing, but it's so important. And one of the reasons we're not making more progress in our community is because we don't trust each other. And one of the reasons we don't trust each other is because so many of us have not behaved in a trustworthy way. And so if you tell somebody I'm going to do A, B, and C, they should be able to take that to the bank. They should be able to count on it that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. Now, this is especially a problem with black men. And I've been in circles with black men where uh, we had, in fact, at the school, we had a men's club, what we call the Baba's Club. And our motto was simple, do what you say you going to do. That was actually our public motto, the private motto inside the circle was do what the fuck you say you're going to
0: do. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you.
1: So sometimes, and we would sit around, you know, uh, if somebody said, okay, I'm going to do this, that, this, and that. And then two weeks later, we get back together and we ask the brother, well, did you do this and that, and this and like you said? And people be trying to squirm and, oh, well, you know, what happened was, you know, blah, blah, splee, this, that, this, this. and uh, we wasn't going for it. And sometimes, brother will, brothers would be ready to fight because we would check the ass so hard. It's like you ain't that ain't flying here, you know what I'm saying? And some of the, hmm. some of the brothers were strapped, so you know, Casper wanted to jump, jump up. It wasn't you know, <laughs> going to go down like you know, jump up if you want to, but it wasn't. And so, and, but this is what men need. We need to check each other and learn how to hold each other to our words so that we move in integrity. Yeah. But women, children, everybody, we need to move in integrity. Now, that's not to say that we're not going to all fall short. I don't always keep my word. I fall short sometimes. But the thing is, when you fall short, to acknowledge it. Don't try to put it on somebody else and say, oh, you know, so Johnny did this, blah, blah, please, you know, this, that, and the third. You know, accept responsibility for your actions and 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 then make it right. If, you know, say, well, look, I know I said I was going to be there at 3 o'clock with the, you know, with the book, but... You know, something happened. I didn't get there three, but, you know, I'm going to call you and let you know. I'll be there by four with the book. Account for yourself. Yes. So that would be the second thing I would want to leave to my uh, grandchildren. And then the, the third thing I would want to leave is that because we've embraced our divinity, that we should be manifesting greatness, that whatever we conceive in our mind, we can make manifest in the physical world. And that it's our responsibility to do that. You know, each one of us comes here with certain gifts and attributes. And if we hide our light under a bushel, as they say in some text, then we're depriving the entire world of the gift that we were put here to share with humanity. And so don't shy away from your greatness. Now, when I say greatness, I don't mean arrogance, because the greatness is really because the divinity is flowing through you, because you're a vessel. So don't lift yourself off that I'm this and I'm that, you know, I got some big title, I'm this. You know, that's not what it's about. It's about letting the, the most high and the ancestors flow through you so that you can manifest that greatness for the greater good of our people. So those will be three things I would want to leave in a time capsule uh, that hopefully my children and other future generations might benefit from. I might leave a CD from my band Molly Wap too, though.
0: <laughs> you absolutely got to leave a CD, bro. Uh, if people want to get in contact with you, how do they go about doing that?
1: Uh, there's a couple ways. Uh, probably the best way is on Instagram. So on Instagram, my handle is B Black and Green. B E Black, B L A C K, and Green. Uh, that's probably the best way. But also, I'm on Facebook. You know, under my name, Malik Yakini, and uh, they can get in touch with our organization, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, uh, either on our website, which is www.dbcfsn. Dot O-R-G. Again, that's www.dbc, Detroit Black Community, F-S-N, Food Security Network, dot O-R-G. Uh, we're also, the organization is also on Instagram, also on Facebook. So, you know, we pre- we're we pretty easy to reach. I'll put it like that. I'm easy to reach and the, the organization and the band, everything I'm doing is pretty easy to reach.
0: What's the name of the uh, grocery store?
1: It's called the Detroit People's Food Co-op. And that Uh-oh. has a website as well. People Google that Detroit People's Food Co-op. You'll get the website. It's on Instagram. It's on Facebook. All of all of these things. So we're easy, easy to find.
0: Man, um, I cannot possibly thank you enough, bro.
1: It's my pleasure. It's been a, a you know I like doing interviews with people who say motherfucker. I like that. You know, well,
0: I say I say that's, motherfucker that's,
1: a lot. <laughs> but I appreciate you saying that because that's, one of, that's actually one of my favorite words. So. <laughs> I appreciate the chance to just kind of free up and kick it with
0: you like that. Oh man, it, it it's it's been well worth the wait, bro. Um, so I just want to thank you, and and if nobody has told you today, man, I'm proud of you.
1: Thank you, bro. I appreciate that. I appreciate the encouragement. I appreciate what you're doing.
0: Come on, man. Um, on that note, man, I'm gonna let you go. You have already given way more time than I could have ever asked for. Um, I, oh, thank you so much, um, okay. A- Adrian. I, I can't thank you enough, Queen. Appreciate you. Um, on that note, man, have a good one. If you ever need me for anything, bro, all you got to do is say the word.
1: Got you. I'll be hollering at you.
0: No doubt. I'll be at the grocery store, man, as as August. August.
1: I'll be there. All right. Well, August completion to construction, October for the actual opening. All
0: right. Make, make sure you send me, you know, send me something. Hey, I, so I can be there. I want to be there day one.
1: I will. I will. I will. Yeah,
0: absolutely. All right. On thank that note, you. man, peace fun. out, man. Have a good one. Peace out. Yo, and I'm sorry, uh, yeah, I don't have a intro, this wasn't the, you know, typical, man, it is what it is, man, that was a dope conversation, shout out to that brother, um, on that note, man, y'all have a good one.